So you've had a, a busy um, a busy week. Uh, it's been a week of of uh, entertaining frustration. I've got a big job on, and it's just been delayed by a variety of things. And I just started to get my teeth into it yesterday, late yesterday. Um, I've been in the workshop for an hour this morning, and uh, just to do a quick glue up, uh, uh, and now I'm here. Oh, I'm impressed that you've been in this morning. Yeah, it's it was early. It was early. So what's the job? Can you talk about it? Or? Yeah, sure. It's a, it's a big domestic job. Um, it's one of those things that it's kind of more bigger of every, more of everything and bigger of everything than I've done before. It's physically large. There's a three by four meter shelving unit, um, which is, you know, <laughs> mahusive compared to the size of my workshop. Uh, and it's, and there's a lot of it. There's, there's many, many rooms of it. it it's kind of, me upping my game a bit, which is, you know, a topic for a whole other podcast probably, but, uh, you know, sprayed finish, veneered interiors, much higher level of carpentry and cabinet making that I've done before. And I was a bit like a rabbit in the headlights to, for a, an extent. What, one of the headaches with this is that the clients want me to build it all and then deliver and install. So I've got to store it somewhere along the way. Um, it's complicated because I... I've never worked, and this is going to sound ridiculous to most people, but I've never worked more than five or ten minutes away from the workshop for the last, you know, five years probably. Yeah, I'm the so, same. Yeah. I, I, I try to keep local for everything. Yeah, exactly. Really. Whereas this is up in North London, and it's only, you know, nine miles away. But it's, you know, 40, minute, 40 minutes to get there. Uh, so, I, you know, being able to pop back in there to, to do a quick measure up for something I've forgotten or anything is, is, is difficult. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, 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 an interesting project to do. I'll be glad when it's over. Uh, and it's a good earner, you know, uh, end of the day. It's, uh, it's for a family member of an interior designer that I do a fair bit of work for. So there's Fantastic. that little little added frisson of. Uh, <laughs> are, you, are you filming any of it? Uh, I'll film some of the build. I don't know, don't know if I can shoot the install. Uh, we'll have to see. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's always tricky getting that balance of actually getting the job done yes. versus uh, trying to get stuff on YouTube and stuff like that because it, it does just take so much longer. It does take longer, it, or you end up just planting the you know your your GoPro in a corner and and doing a fast forward sort of install kind of thing which is which is fine that'll work but if you actually want to use it as a as a teaching opportunity as a as a opportunity for somebody to learn from your videos then obviously you've got to take time to to do the detail bits and bobs and all the little tricks that you uh, that you use when you install this stuff i think the other thing as well is that you lose focus from the job Whenever you're having to think about, oh, I need to move the camera and get a better camera angle, or the lighting's not quite right over here, or where did I get it up to in my script, if you're following a script. Yeah. And you kind of lose focus from the task at hand. And I, I find just being able to plough through a job without thinking about that, oh, it, it's so much easier to just yeah, it, get on with it. It is, definitely. It definitely adds a, a level of complexity that you could do without when you're when you're on the clock, most of the time for most of the jobs I, I shoot video on, uh, for the installs, uh, it's it's you know it's not that much of a of a problem. Uh, I can I can get it sorted without too many too many hassles. I've got to, I've got enough time to, to get that done. Um, but on some it, you can't. So you know you you got to do the ones you can and ignore the ones you can't. 
Yeah, exactly. And you tend to kind of build up a bit of a backlog of videos anyway. And, and yeah. I, I don't know what it's like on, on your side, but I, I think at the minute I've probably got about 15 videos that are mid-edit. And that's everything from I've recorded footage and I haven't started editing mm-hmm. through to it's almost completely done, but just needs like an introduction added or, or yeah. something like that. And then I've got a whole batch of other ones where I've recorded little bits but it needs a whole load more done. But it's just kind of, if I don't record the bits, I'll forget about that idea for a video. Yes. So I'll, I'll record the odd little bit and it'll just sit there in a folder. And I've got some, honestly, they're dating back. The continuity problems I'm going to have if yeah. I revisit those videos are going to be horrendous. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's one of the problems. I, I, you know, even now I've, I've got a couple of videos where I'm, where I'm in short sleeves in, in <laughs> obviously dating back from late summer. And, uh, you know, how do you, how do you record an intro to that? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> Although when you... I have found that, uh, the audience are amazingly forgiving when it comes to continuity. I've I found... I just don't think they noticed. <laughs> to be no, I think people are so focused on the, the woodworking and the tools and, and what we're trying to do in the videos. I, I've had stuff where I've changed hats halfway through and yeah. I've, I've literally had a jacket on and a different jacket and no one's ever mentioned it. And I don't know if people are just being kind and polite. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you're... I, Perhaps they are. I, I, I suspect they just don't notice. Certainly, I've had videos where I've I've had to reshoot a an overhead shot or something, and I've discovered afterwards that I was wearing a different shirt. You know, and yeah, no, and and nobody's said anything anyway. So yeah, as you say, maybe they're just being particularly polite. So this is our first episode mm. of the Measuring Up podcast. It is indeed. Should we tell people what it's about? We haven't really decided. Uh, what we haven't really about. decided. I mean, <laughs> they, uh, these things come together remarkably quickly. We hadn't actually spoken on the phone until a week or so ago, uh, and I am almost exactly a week behind <laughs> on this job. There's absolutely no correlation <laughs> between those two points at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, we we we've both chatted. We're both on YouTube. Uh, your Gosforth handyman on on, yep. U- on the YouTube's, and I'm Peter Millard at Ten Minute Workshop. Ten Minute Workshop TV, um, uh, and we we've, we've sort of chatted in each other's others comments so we've swapped a few emails and things along the way because we've both been aware of each other's channels um and it came up in conversation over email the idea for a podcast and it's actually come together incredibly quickly it, it, literally in the last week or so uh, we've got all the social names done we d- discussed it decided we ought to do it and got a vague sort of idea of the running order and the things that we'd like to discuss uh, i guess from my point of view the there isn't really, although there's, you know, the podcasting landscape is incredibly rich. Uh, there's some amazing uh, podcasts out there. I haven't found one, and I don't know about you, I haven't found one that really touches on what we do, sort of carpentry cabinet making, one-man band uh, business. I actually got a phone call from my timber yard coming in. <laughs> <laughs> It'll keep. Well, I mean, certainly from my perspective, I mean, I listen a lot of podcasts, mm. but they're, well, they're all American, you know. They're, they're, yeah. they're nearly all American. A, a lot of them are. There's very few UK podcasts. Full stop. Uh, there's some really, really good ones. Uh, I'll not name them because I'll forget certain ones and just yep. offend yeah, people. Yeah. But but the, the <laughs> we'll maybe link to some of them in the show notes. That's or, a good or idea. Something, or, or we'll come up with a list for next time of ones that we'll maybe do listen to UK-wide. From a commercial joinery perspective, I haven't heard any UK podcasts. And I haven't really heard that many 
American ones that focus on the commercial side. It's like the Protractor mm. podcast, um, uh, I suppose, making it to a degree because they are all full-time makers in America. So, But they're, yeah, I but suppose they're, they're more YouTube. Those guys are full-time YouTubers, aren't they? That's yeah, the thing. Exactly. They, they concentrate very much on making stuff for their YouTube channel. I know Jimmy, yeah. Jimmy DeResta obviously did commercial work while he had his YouTube stuff going on. But, and I, th- uh, I think he still does. I think he still oh, yeah, does. yeah, yeah, yeah quite a lot of commercial work but certainly Bob and David are as far as I'm aware everything that they're doing is is kind of projects for themselves that, that they're filming purely for the YouTube side of things but yes which is awesome um but I think it just puts a slightly different slant on things chatting about it from a commercial perspective when you've got to make money from the job that you're working on that puts a whole different perspective on things and you know I would love to spend three weeks making a solid oak. Well, you know, you look at some of the projects that are out there at the minute and uh, like Matt Cremona with his, his latest high boy project. And I, th- mm. I think that's taken him what four months or something, you yeah. know, and it's stunning The the work that he's done on that is absolutely beautiful. But from a commercial perspective, I suppose once you develop a name for doing that sort of work, then you can, charge whatever you want for a project and yeah but certainly over where i am there's just zero demand for for that or I, i've had zero demand for I, I get very little demand even for for solid wood everyone wants yeah. to paint stuff white it's a story of my life as well i mean you know i, I, I don't know about you but in, in, in the comments on your videos I, i'm constantly getting comments on mine about why do you paint everything white i'll you know the, my standard response is look i'll paint them whatever color you want i'll make it in you know whatever wood you want 99 percent of the people who come to me for fitted furniture want white painted or maybe maybe white with a hint of something darker, but you know it's almost always a white eggshell finish. Um, and I'm unusually on this this big job that's coming up, or that I'm sort of in the middle of, at the start of. Uh, it's actually some of the little cabinets are actually uh, uh, Sapili veneer boards oh, on the beautiful. inside, which is nice. Yeah. Have you worked with anything like that before? Then never or? actually. No, I've done. I did a little bit of oak veneer uh, before Christmas. Did a floating shelf, and I've done a little bit of beach veneer uh, on a desk year or so ago but no i mean the vast majority of what i do is painted so you know you've got to go down that route of building what the customer's asking for and um and the other side obviously is the the cost aspect of going down the route of, of solid wood or veneered it's a much longer process for for doing the work uh, you've got mm. to be so much more careful on jointing uh, to a degree yeah. you, you need a different um, set of tools to a degree for working with that sort yeah. of stuff to get your, your really really perfect joints because you can't be going around and corking stuff up and I'm not no. advocating going around and corking stuff up but if everything's ultimately going to be getting painted white that's kind of a flexibility that that you've that you've got you know if you make a joint that is half a millimeter out and it's going to be getting painted you can you can fix it rather mm. than recutting it maybe. Yeah you should argue that, well, no, you should recut it and teach yourself a lesson and get it perfect. But sometimes you're, you're running short on time. And, yeah. Perfect uh, is the enemy of getting things done, I think. So, uh, well, you know, yeah, that, you, that's the thing. You work, you're working to a price, you've got to get a job finished and uh, you need to move on to the next one. Yeah, so so I think certainly from, from my perspective, it's trying to build a podcast that focuses on the commercial side of, Mm. Uh, a, a boutique joinery business which is kind of how how i 
put myself across. Yeah, it. I saw it's that. So, so you, isn't, don't you find it a little restricting just making boutiques? It's uh, you know, can you not branch out and do sort of <laughs> radiator covers or something? You know, someone said that in a comment. <laughs> I, I think. Do you make anything else? And it's yeah. like, no, <laughs> it's not quite what I meant. Yeah, and we'll probably get more into how we've ended up at this point. Mm. I, I don't know if we'll we'll get into it in this podcast or not. Um, well, I think it's a worthwhile but, starting point, as this is the first one. I think it's probably worth sort of by way of introduction, just giving a little bit of history, a little bit of background about ourselves uh, and how we got here. Because uh, I don't know about you, my background isn't in, isn't in carpentry or cabinet making or joinery or, or, or anything like that. Uh, I'm not, not sure if yours was as well. Not really. It's, it's an unconventional route into, uh, into joinery for myself. But right. I, I hear that a lot with people these days. Um, I, I remember watching a, a, an episode of Horizon about five or ten years ago where they said that in the not-too-distant future, it's going to be very commonplace for careers to end uh, when you when you approach kind of 40 or 50 and you retrain and start a whole new career mm. because jobs are going to last so much longer and we're going to be working until we're so much older yeah. that, that it's very difficult to do one job for 50 years. Yes, um, well, a job no, for and, and, a job for life is a thing of the past now. I think, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. totally. And I, and I think that's ringing true so much. And I see mm. see that across the board. I'm seeing people who were working in joinery moving into IT, and I'm seeing people who were in IT moving into joinery. It's a and, big, and it's, big crossover between IT and oh, joinery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've noticed this as well. An awful lot of techie guys that I know really like their you know fancy their chances at uh, at doing carpentry and cabinet making or, or, or whatever the finer joinery aspects of things possibly it's a it's a mentality thing it's a you know yeah it's strange i don't know if it's um maybe slightly a creativity thing where obviously in it generally you don't get to be that creative uh, certainly if you're working uh-huh. on things like tech support and stuff like that you're sure. just constantly solving problems but you never really get to design anything you know i suppose if you're working more in the software development side maybe there's more scope for that but uh yeah even then i would imagine things are fairly restricted i don't have a huge amount of experience on the on the development side of things but maybe it's that pent up need to create something that that just needs to be released eventually yeah maybe right uh, yeah and that 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 coupled with a kind of logical brain that you have to have for working in it i think Uh is quite a, a sensible crossover into making stuff you, you've yes. got to have that kind of quite regimented methodology. Yeah, yeah, you've got to be able to work stuff through step by step and kind of plan ahead of where that project's going to end up and how long it's going to take and, mm. and whatnot. And just before we start on that side, I just yeah. want to make a quick apology because I'm absolutely sods law. First podcast, I'm absolutely full of the cold. So if, if I'm sounding a bit blocked up and stuff, <laughs> um, I've been hit by the lurgy. It's not stopping us from getting stuff done no. but it does mean that I'm a bit uh, a bit drippy you've got a head full of <laughs> head full of stuff nasty yes yeah, so mm. if I have to occasionally kind of mute and, and the other thing is is that I, I don't know what the weather's like down there but we're, we're in the middle of this crazy kind of storm Mm. We're, uh, we're recording this ahead of for, for the listener we're recording this yeah. ahead of time um, when, when you create a podcast it's a good idea to get three episodes out between three and five at one hit so iTunes ranks you a little bit a little bit better uh, so we're pre-recording these and yes great britain is in the the icy throes of the 
beast from the east, they call it. It's just a bit cold and there's a bit of snow. But uh, yeah, it, it is it is chilly out there. We're in London in particular. I'm in London and, and Andy, you're in uh, Newcastle. Unusually for London, London, you know, big city, tends to stay warmer than the rest of the country. We have underfloor heating in the pavements, of course. It didn't get above freezing yesterday. It, it started at something like minus four and it got to minus one, and then it started getting colder again. This morning's it's it started at minus one, and hopefully we'll uh, we'll get into positive figures at some point during the day. But uh, it is fresh out there. It, it is brisk. Oh, tell us about it. So occasionally, I'm just hearing these giant gusts of wind outside yeah. because we're, it's kind of approaching gale force. And I'm not sure if that's going to come across on the recording or not. I'm hoping it doesn't. I've tried to move the mic a little bit away from the, <laughs> the window. Yeah, I'm recording at the, at the top of my house as well. And it's uh, it's been pretty gusty here, although not uh, not too bad at the moment. But yeah, and that itself presents challenges with getting the workshop warmed up and paint drying. And Yeah, let's just go back. You don't have heating in your workshop. Oh, I do, but <laughs> but the trouble is, is by the follow. You know, my workshop. We've both got small workshops. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what what size is your shop? Uh, it's about three hundred square feet in total. So, but made of two rooms, which is really awkward. You know, each one's only about eight eight foot by sixteen, roughly uh, eight foot yeah. by nineteen. Uh, so mine's in, mine's two hundred mine's two hundred and fifty right. square foot, but all in one room. So I've got literally all my wood and uh, just stuff stacked up around the walls right up to the ceiling as far as I can go. So the the benefit of a small workshop is that it does heat up really quickly. It does. Um, and I've got it pretty well insulated and stuff. But still in temperatures like this, by the following morning, mm. it's negative two in there. So I'm, I'm having to go in early on, switch the heating on, just trying to get it back up to temperature so you can actually comfortably kind of work. And even then... I'm struggling getting it above maybe twelve or thirteen degrees. Wow. Um, is it is it a commercial workspace, Andy, or is it no, attached to your home? No, ju- it's it's just my own uh, garage. So it's basically right. two thirds of a, a double garage. Okay, um, that I've I've taken over. Yeah. Um, which is another whole discussion because yeah, yeah. A, a commercial workshop is on the agenda at some point, but at the moment I'm just trying to eke it out without the costs for as, as long as possible. Yeah. Mine is a commercial workspace, and I took it on because it was just so close to where I live. It's, it's literally across the street from me. So it's you know as, as close as you can get without it being sort of attached to your house kind of thing. That's an uh, amazing find. Uh, 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 yeah, absolutely fantastic. And because it's a commercial space, it is actually heated. I, uh, I have no control over the heating. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I, just, I just have sort of uh, water, I think the water might be oil, I don't know, water pipes running through my workshop at sort of ceiling level and they just right. kind of radiate heat and uh, I went in there I popped in there this morning for a, an hour to do a quick quick glue up before we got into this and it was a rather comfortable uh, 19 and a half degrees in there so oh, uh, I'm so, jealous so very nice Make, makes the glue set off pretty fast have you got people ab- above you then is is it kind of a terrace in, it's, building it's, a, it's, it's a sort of ugly uh, ugly 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 building um it's an old brownstone building originally that was uh, a boot factory and it was bombed during the war and post-war they put up this hideous blue tiled monstrosity uh and it's owned by a a polish charity they split it off into little um, commercial units i fell into a little ground floor unit uh at the time when i needed space i um, again, we'll get into this a little bit more. I don't know if it's in this in this particular podcast, but in my former career, I was a professional photographer and I had a, 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 a muse 
premises on the on the fringes of London's Notting Hill Gate. So it was all very nice. Anyway, when when the photography business sort of pan, didn't pan out, uh, I was looking for some commercial space, and and that was available. Uh, so I took it on as the smallest uh, photographic studio in the whole of West London, and now it's the smallest workshop in the whole of West London. So, uh, oh, so that was your photographic studio then? Uh, I, I shot a few bits and pieces there, but it was—it's too small for that, really. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. That's too small for a workshop. Being able to yeah. repurpose it. <laughs> yeah. There's really nothing else. I, I've got my bandsaw now, mm-hmm. which is amazing, and I've had to completely reorganise the workshop and chuck out stuff to fit that in. And I've got my assembly table kind of in the middle of the room uh-huh. at the moment. I'm probably booked up with stuff till June with work. So I, I tend to try and get a big delivery in of predominantly MDF so that I'm not having to go constantly back and forwards. That is just taking up every, I've got MDF everywhere yeah, in my a, workshop it's at a, the minute. a forest of MDF. It's, it's Yeah, just, and it's <laughs> to the point that now I'm having to store it on my assembly table because I've got as much as I can possibly get around the walls and I've, I've just run out of space, so it's having mm. to just sit on my assembly table. But the problem now is that I can't get to my router table because my router table builds in my assembly table. Right. So until I've cleared down at least three sheets of MDF and got those <laughs> cut to size, I can't get to my router table. So that that's... The challenges of a small workshop. I'm going to say, small workshop woe is it's uh, it's uh, just a constant battle for for space and efficiency, isn't it? It's like one of these slide puzzles uh, for trying yes. to move stuff yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so you were saying about where how you started off and how you got into yeah. I mean, I I was a, a classic sort of schoolboy woodworker. I was good at woodwork at school. I was good at physical things. I'm good at making things. I was always making bits and pieces when I was a kid. I was a grammar school boy and I wasn't very good at sciences. I was quite good at maths. I liked physics, but not chemistry. Uh, I was good at woodwork, but I didn't like metalwork, you know, (laughs) and I was interested in photography Uh, and they just didn't know what to do with me, basically. So I was sort of heading for a, to to stay on at school and do A-level woodwork. And and it looked like I was going to be the only A-level student that the... We had two woodwork teachers, and I can't for the life of me remember their names. And I, you know, one was the sort of the the younger, cool guy. uh, uh, And there there was an older sort of bluffer, little Tash and a, you know, XRAF sort of bloke. Uh, And uh, he he was the guy who took the A-level students on. So I was was heading to stay on at uh, at school to do A-levels and do A-level woodwork and maybe maths but you know i knew even then that was going to be a a stretch because uh, i found maths quite difficult i just got in my sort of later teens 14 to 15 i started getting interested in photography um it was it was just sort of a, a an all-consuming hobby i loved the whole idea of it i loved cameras i loved you know developing your own photos it was the the perfect match between physics and chemistry and art in a way it was all about composition and you know uh, so I got sort of mad keen on photography and the, the, the school had a photography club and you you know you got involved in that after I'd taken my O levels uh, that's a set of exams that you, you do when you're around about 16 called GCSEs now um, I'd done that and was heading into A level woodwork and something else maybe maths and physics my sister had been to art school she'd done a two year foundation course and I thought, well, they were holding interviews. I thought I'd just go along with my portfolio uh, and see what they said. So I just had some pictures that I'd t- taken and I, you know, 
I'd run around, I'd, I'd been placed second in a national photo competition for a, a camera magazine, which uh, gave me a bit of uh, a bit of a boost in terms of uh, credibility for, for me personally, my, you know, back as a 16 year old. Uh, I went along to art school and they said, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, that's fine. We start on the, you know, 28th of September or whatever it was. <laughs> and that was that. They just offered me a place there and then. So uh, I, I decided to, to do that instead of staying on at school. I went to art school at 16. I did an A-level art, I think, and something else while I was there. And then went on to do uh, photography, film and television uh, at, uh, at a degree level here in London uh, and stayed, basically. Um, I, was a photo- I was a photographer for uh, the best part of 20 years. As a photographer, there aren't really photography jobs uh, unless you want to do sort of press-type work. Um, so the, the traditional route of becoming a photographer is to work as, a, as an assistant uh, to another established photographer, and that's usually a, a self-employed freelance position. And the, you know, I, I, one of the guys I'd been at college with, somebody he worked for, their agent knew a couple of guys who needed somebody to work for them, and it was one of those, you know, who you know rather than what you know. Uh, so I worked for a couple of days a week for each of these guys, uh, and then sort of got a bit more established in in what I wanted to do in in photography, because obviously photography is like woodworking. There are so many different varieties of, of what you can do as a photographer. Um, and then I went freelance, went out on my own and did that for, as I say, you know, probably 15, 15 years, actually shooting with my own my own sort of studio, my own uh, workshop and everything. And that all sort of imploded, you know, slowly first and then very quickly in, in 2000, uh, in the year 2000. Uh, I'd worked very hard. You know, they had the 80-20 rule when you're self-employed, 80% of your work comes from 20% of your clients you know that's yeah. that's one of those uh, immutable facts you can't sort of <laughs> you can't get away from it um, and I, I'd worked very hard to to spread um, the variety of photographic work that I had around so I was doing sort of decent quality still life product photography for advertising and design companies I was doing uh, photographs of, of kids children for uh, sort of educational publications sort of books for that go into schools, uh, sort of the educational publishing business, uh, and a variety of other little things as well. And then, you know, through no fault of, of my own, the, the two big uh, design and advertising agencies that I was working for decided to merge, you know, completely uh, outside of my scope. And they, they decided that they had between them enough work to put an in-house studio in. So all that work went away. Uh, all the publishing work that I was doing, it kind of seesaws between photographic work and, and illustrated work, so drawings, you know, professional illustrations. And it was we had a swing away from the, the photography side, more towards illustration. So that all that work went. And I figured I was also 40 years old in 2000. And uh, I sort of had a look around and thought, you know, I've done this for, you know, 15, 20 years, including the training and all the rest of it. I'm a bit long in the tooth to be hawking my portfolio around to sort of 12-year-olds in <laughs> advertising agencies. Uh, maybe it's time to do something else. So I, I sold I'd more more by luck than judgment. I'd been able to buy a long lease on uh, the, the studio that I had. So I sold that, paid a chunk of my mortgage off. Uh, and then I didn't quite know what to do with myself. So I had a nice summer off, hitting the gym three times a week and, you know, doing all those things. And uh, my wife said, well, you know, there's a thousand things that need doing around the house. Find somebody to sort, to sort those out. Uh, and I couldn't. I couldn't find anybody to do 
little odds and ends. So I started a handyman business. Um, I started a, a, you know, just a small jobs type of business. And then that grew into doing a little bit of everything. And now in the last few years, I've just concentrated on the on the cabinet making, on the uh, the fitted furniture side mostly. And here we are, you know, almost 20 years later. Anyone who's thinking of getting into almost any trade, but certainly joinery, starting off in property maintenance and, and a handy, and that's how I started and I've still got the name on my YouTube channel, uh, but that's not my business name. But starting off in something like that is a fantastic way of getting into the, the industry because you get, as you say, there's no one wants to do those smaller jobs. And there's a steady stream of work because but what, what sorted it for me was I stood at my front door or, you know, imagine standing at my front door in my back garden. I thought, well, give me a square mile, half a mile in each direction for where I'm standing now. How many houses, homes, flats, shops, offices are there in that area that needs something doing. I'll bet you there's 50 quid's worth of work that needs doing in every single one of them. Just a question of finding it. Absolutely. And that, and that's how, I'll, well, we'll come to that on my side in a mm. bit. But once you've started doing that, those sort of small jobs, those customers end up coming back to you for, for everything. Yeah. People try, people try you out on small jobs before, oh, they, before they want to give you a, something something bigger, something more substantial. Because, you, you know, you're inviting somebody into your home. You've got to make sure that they're going to treat it with the respect that, that you do. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and it's a great way of just getting that, that customer base mm. up and running in the first place. And, you know, yeah. you're going to have to do a few unpleasant jobs that you might not particularly want to do. As long as you learn from it, it doesn't matter. And and if you're building up a, a customer base of, of, and I've still got customers now who have used me for for years for doing really horrible jobs like unblocking plug holes yeah. and, you know, the sort of stuff that you get called out to do if, you, if you're doing a handyman business. Yeah. And they've now asked me to do full um, built-in alcove, installs, yeah. fitted wardrobes, you know, all of that's come off the back of doing the smaller jobs in the first place because they view you just as a, a reputable, trusted tradesman, basically. Exactly. And, exactly. and, and that's almost, that, that is the most important thing is to build a business to a degree where you are trusted by the client. And and even if they don't want you to do the work, they'll, I don't know about yourself, but they come to me to, to ask who... Am I best going yeah. to to get or, this sort of job done? Or, or for advice? Yeah, absolutely. It happens all the time. You, you know, they they become yeah almost like friends. You know, I've got <laughs> I've got an older uh, uh, client of mine. She she's comfortably fixed. She lives in Egypt uh, at the moment, and uh, she pops back to to her little house in in London periodically. And, and there's a couple of silly little odds and ends, and it's not the kind of work I do anymore, to be honest. But I were happy to pop in there and sort those out for her. She knows. I'll be able to do it. She knows I'll I'll do it properly and in a timely way. Uh, and she knows that I'll do it professionally and, and look after her house and make sure that everything's uh, uh, in good order while she's not there. So that was back in around 2000 then? So that was in 2000, yeah, 2001. I officially started my uh, my handyman business. Uh, so yes, uh, this is this is coming up to my 18th year. <laughs> longer, wow. longer in this than I was as a photographer, yeah. Has it just kind of gradually evolved into 
the joinery side, or was that a conscious decision? It was a conscious decision. It was a conscious decision over the last few years. Uh, I was enjoying it more. I stopped enjoying doing the sort of kitchen and bathroom type work, um, which, you know, they're good earners and they, you know, people need them doing. But it's, I'm, uh, you know, as I'm getting older, I'm finding it harder. I'm 58 this year. So, you know, I'm sort of looking towards retirement rather than <laughs> moving workshops or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, it's evolved, but with a little bit of, you know, a little bit of a push on my part uh, towards the, 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 the joinery cabinet making sort of side. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good mix of work, mostly domestic, although some, some commercial through an interior designer. That's quite nice work. Cause I just do the woodworky bits and all the, all the painting and stuff is sent off to, uh, to somebody else to, to deal with that. So. And how, how have you developed the skills over time to do that sort of work? Has it just been learning on the job? Or? Pretty much. The, key, the keen listener will have noticed that I have no formal qualifications in any kind of wood butchery. As I said, I was always handy at school. I was, I was good at woodwork. And I've always done bits and pieces sort of around the house. And really, it's just an extension of that. I, one of my little, when I first did the, uh, started the handyman business, uh, my, my sort of tagline was that it was DIY, but I do it for you. You know, it's, it was that level of, uh, I wasn't pretending to be anything that I'm not. And the skills I've just sort of, I've just learned. Yeah. You know, you, you know, what's good enough and you know, what isn't, uh, you, you do better and, and visiting other people's homes, you see bits and pieces of joinery that other people have done and you think, Oh, that's nice. I like the way they've done that. Yeah, I can use that. I, you know, I'd never come across the the return, the reverse mitre thing in a skirting board or a cordis before until I saw it in a in a client's house, and I thought, oh, that's nice. Yeah, I like what they've done there. I, I can do that. And then maybe you could put two of those in to put a yeah, you know, you could be a bit clever with it. So yes, it's it's very much learning on the job and uh, and being confident enough in your own skills that you know not to take on things that are going to give you problems as well. Yeah, it's kind of a case of taking on enough to push yourself without it being biting off more than you can chew. Um, and it's trying to get that balance. And- yeah, I have bitten off a bit more than I can chew on this on this current job because it is it is big. There are, you know, it's not just physically big, but there are lots of parts to it. Uh, and I'm a bit, a bit late starting on it. And, you know, it's, it's not ideal um, rather than being caught like a deer in the headlights i'll uh, i'll tough it out and get on with it because that's what we do you know <laughs> well you've got to, yeah you've you've got to crack on and you've got to exactly work work through the problems and the the first job like that is always uh, the hardest and you'll learn so much from it and then moving on to similar jobs or, or you know easier jobs working within here it'll be like oh this is a doddle yeah. compared to the one that you've already done you know and yes. uh, sometimes it's quite nice to go into stuff like that and uh coming on from uh well basically to where you are now how do you view developing the business over time do you view uh, are you planning on just keeping it yourself would you consider taking on staff or growing it or anything no as i say from you know i'm I'm 58 this year my wife's a couple of years older than me she's probably going to retire next year maybe the one after so i'm much more thinking about winding it down rather than anything and that's just uh you know my time of life uh, thing. No, I'm I'm very happy keeping it just me. I've got a couple of guys I know who can come in and help me uh, when I need just physical help with, you know, bigger things. But I'm very happy keeping it just just a one man band, just just me, and a little workshop and a and a van full of tools. There's a good niche 
just for doing your kind of your smaller projects and other and by smaller I mean not your bespoke fitted kitchens. Yeah, yeah. I would generally do anything up to wardrobe size. Yes. But even then, huge fitted wardrobes I probably wouldn't take on because it tends to turn into too much of a two man job yeah. if, if you're doing giant uh, sliding doors and things like that where yeah. you've got to have two people to lift them in and, yeah. and stuff. And I've just, I'd rather just keep it to the, I've got plenty of work coming in at the moment, touch wood, but just kind of your, your mid size, one man joinery jobs. Yeah. And, and that, I kind of view my job size around the size of my truck. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I don't know. So I, I, I drive a truck and I have to consider for everything I'm making, how am I going to get that to the customer's mm. site? So if it's a, a piece of furniture I'm making, I either have to make it so that I can take it to bits and put it in the back of the truck uh, or flat pack it and reassemble mm. it at the customer's site, or I have to make sure it's no bigger than about uh, 1.5 by 1.4 metres, and yeah. that, that will that will fit in the, the back of my truck, no problem. I try to avoid putting stuff on the roof after a slight horror story I had, but that, that's another story for another day. <laughs> I, think, I think we've all had those horror stories, haven't we? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, dear, yes. Yeah, that, that was yeah. a close call. Mm. Interesting. I, I've, I've gone the other way, and I, because one of my biggest headaches being in London is parking. Parking is, a, is a, such a nightmare, and that's the other thing on this big job. Where it is, it's in a, in a borough of London where there is only ever two-hour parking. Uh, and you get charged an extra four pounds an hour on top of the regular parking charge for those two hours uh, for having the temerity to drive a diesel. So you know, oh, <laughs> it's just nice. two, two hours parking costs about fifteen quid. Because there's so much choice of electric commercial vehicles. Uh, almost none. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very few. I mean, I, I would seriously consider it, but again, the the problem is where do you charge it? How do you manage to get more than seventy miles on it? You know. Yeah. I would love it as well, but we're we're just not there yet. As I say, I I run a a, a small van, little Citroen Berlingo uh, type van, car derived van, uh, and I ha- I have a guy who delivers my stuff for me. Um, uh, similarly, because of the size of the workshop, I have a really good timber yard local to me that does the cutting for me. So I give them a cut list, and for the most part, they'll they'll have it cut to size. Yeah. So if you make a bigger item, you've got someone who'll just physically take it from. Your workshop to the customer yep. site. Long, long as I can, long as I can get it out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. That, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's a good idea. I've been contemplating getting a trailer for for some of the bigger stuff mm. because I, I really like my truck. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, similar sort of thing. It's probably similar size to your van, right? And it just makes life so much easier. And plus, in this sort of weather, and it's four wheel drive, so I don't have to have any panics about going out and being able to get materials or go to customer sites no matter what the weather is. Plus it's a five-seater, so if I'm going away with the family and stuff like that, I, I can still get the family in the truck comfortably and everything that we could ever want and more in, in the back. And it, it just works really well. So, um, But you do always have that restriction and you see people driving around in the in the big sprinters and things and you just think, oh, you can fit full sheets of 8x4 oh, in the yeah. back of your yeah. truck. And you get that kind of slight uh, in the back of your van and you get that kind of van envy. Mm. I say, yeah, but I still don't think the pros outweigh the cons. I can get three me- a three-metre length of timber down into the footwell diagonally and still get the back doors closed. Any- anything bigger than that will go on the roof and anything, you know, large, then you either flat pack it and, bu- and-, and build it on site or-, or if it's possible to get it in in... F- uh, fully made, 
then my my man and van will deliver it for me and uh, uh, we'll take it in between us. Which is a big a big help actually. I, I'd quite like just to have somebody else doing the installs. To be honest, that's that's the only yeah. the only sort of area I might develop the business in. If I can find somebody just to do the installs, because that's a, a younger man's game, I think. Especially if you're in flats and yes. you're not allowed to use the lift and all this sort or, of thing, which or is no just lift, all, yeah. Oh, right. don't get started on yeah, that one. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I follow quite a few people on. Uh, Instagram and you see the work that they're doing and the gear that they've had to bring up to do like a big fitted wardrobe install or whatever and they've had to bring the whole lot up the stairs because they're not allowed to put it in the lift and it's like oh my word how do you how do you even start work when well, fact and a lot of them are saying you know your first day is just getting the materials just getting the gear in, in yeah just getting the materials in and and it's uh yeah so I mean I'm 43 now and you know you start to feel pains from 40 onwards that you didn't have before and <laughs> you start to get more tired more quickly and i did my first install uh, a couple of weeks ago uh first install of the year i've been doing freestanding stuff until then and uh, it absolutely creased me i just it was on a monday just did a one day a little alcove unit fitted and absolutely shattered the next day i got yeah. aches on bits I couldn't rem- remember I'd had, you know. Um, it is, it is, it, you know, it, it's it's good for you. It's, you know, oh, yeah. good, actually good for your health as long as you don't put your back out or something. Yeah. But it is it is hard physical work and it is very much a younger man's game. And as you say, post 40, um, you definitely feel it. And uh, I'm feeling it a lot more now, that's for sure. I'd, I had this giant delivery of, of MDF last week and uh, it was 14, I think 14, 18 mil boards and they're 40, where, 45 kilos a piece, aren't they? They're, yeah, about 45 kilos each. And uh, I have since, you might have seen that, I've made like a little dolly thing for wheeling around yeah, so that nice. when it's on a, on a flat surface. And that works really well. But where, I, where my delivery comes in, I need to get it across my garden <laughs> uh, and then around a, a, an awkward corner and yeah. stuff. And then I can get it onto the dolly. One sheet at a time. Yeah. It takes a while, doesn't it? One sheet at a time. And uh, I've since actually purchased one of those uh, gorilla gripper All right. uh, things after shifting 14 sheets of MDF in. And it, okay. It only took a couple of hours to shift all the sheets. The following day, I was crippled. Honestly, it was just like my arms were aching, my yeah. legs were aching, and but you do just get tired. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's full on. Yeah, it is, especially if as as we do as well. We have both got YouTube channels, and that does take an awful lot of time in your evenings. You know, you try trying to stay awake and editing and all that sort of stuff. Like that is a topic for a whole other podcast, I think. So tell me, tell me about tell me about your background then. What's your background in uh, if you if you came to the joinery side of things uh, in a slightly roundabout way? A very unconventional route into joinery. I wouldn't particularly advise going down this route, but <laughs> it worked for me. Very similar. I grew up making stuff from a very early age. Um, I, I was always making stuff with Lego and. Airfix models. My dad was an auto electrician, and he had a uh, an auto electrical workshop. He was self employed, so during all the school holidays and stuff, I'd be hanging around his feet. A workshop um, rat. It, it, yeah, and uh, the thing is, he he would get us helping on certain jobs. You know, I'd, I'd probably just uh, and sometimes he would just set us away cutting a piece of wood or just making stuff. I remember. At one point, I could strip down alternators, and <laughs> and uh, he would literally just give us an old alternator and just say, "Here, you can do what you want with it." And I would strip it down to all of its component parts and put it back together again as quickly as possible. And then 
he had all the big test gear for testnet and all this and it was like oh it still works and and I, I used to love that sort of thing so my dad was kind of my maker hero you know he let me play with dangerous tools at the end of the day you know he had a goodness knows how many vices in his workshop and it'd be like here's a vice here's some wood here's a saw just make something you know and so i was using planes and saws and chisels from probably the age of eight or 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 thereabouts Mm -hmm. and then you would start to get into more you know you'd move on from airfix to things like little matchstick models and my dad predominantly did auto electrics but he did he was in the Remi in the in the army, and he was an electrician in the in the Remi. Uh-huh. So he did a lot of domestic electrics as well. So I would be out helping him on rewires, and I would be scurrying under floors, running cables for him, and all sorts of stuff like that. So I was very comfortable with electrics from an early age because he, I would be like, "Well, how do you connect these wires up?" And he would explain it, and he, he would explain how the circuits work and how. Uh, you know, how lighting circuits work. And I don't view myself as an electrician by any stretch of the uh-huh. imagination, but I can do my, my own work very comfortably. I've rewired houses before, and then if I do a, my own rewire, I'll get an electrician in then to, to do all the testing. To do the testing, to, yeah. Yeah, and then and then to sign it off and, and stuff. So I've always been comfortable with with electrics, but I wouldn't really do anything like that for for customers no you're you're very back in the handyman days you know changing lights or changing out a broken socket or something like that would would be all right but i think anything that fell into the maintenance category you know but anyway i I digress i then got more and more into rc stuff so radio control cars and planes Uh and and boats and and stuff and i just always loved woodworking and just making stuff every school holiday i would just be dying to just get in my dad's workshop and just make stuff that that's what i did but yeah similar to yourself at school i loved doing woodworking i was always kind of good at woodworking and i've still got some of my projects that i made from school hanging up in my workshop now yeah. uh which i managed to kind of salvage from my parents house and right and they're they're still there and uh and i still look at them now and think that's actually pretty good, yeah. you know, considering I was only 11 or 12 when yeah, I made that. I've, it's, I've, it's all right. I, I came across, uh, my mom, lost my mum a couple of years ago, but my dad's still going strong. And uh, he's in a, a retirement uh, home, retirement flat, sheltered accommodation there. And I came across a little stool that I made when I was 14 or 15, and it's still still going strong. It still still looks great. My mum had recovered it because she was a soft furnishings whiz. And it's it's it's, you know... Like you, you look at that and you think, actually, it's not bad. I'm not sure I could make little through mortise and tenons that well now because I'm just way out of practice with it. So, yeah, it's nice to see this stuff from from way back. Oh, I think it's lovely to keep hold of that sort of stuff. And, you know, if, if anyone who's who's doing that sort of stuff at school, if you've got any interest in... Because I would love to see more younger people getting into this side of things, you know. I, I don't know whether it's true or not, but people are, are, are often here these days that your, your makers are going to be the millionaires of the future because there's just no one is making stuff anymore, you know. People mm. are so incapable of doing your smaller jobs because they're not brought up using tools and you know what it's like. I mean, I, I would get called out regularly just to change light bulbs and, yes. and, and stuff just because... People didn't know how to get a light bulb out of a fitting. You know? yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the, you, you've got calls like that for all kinds of all kinds of different reasons. I know. I mean, my sister just isn't very comfortable on ladders. She doesn't like doing ladder work, and her husband's in a wheelchair. So, 
they get a guy in to change light bulbs for them because they've got a, a lovely house with, you know, <laughs> all the lights are way, way, way up in the ceilings. Uh, and people, some people just aren't, they have other skill sets, you know, they're, they're just not good at practical stuff in, in that yeah. sort of way. Or they're um, just too busy as well. Or just too busy, know, yeah. People yeah, yeah. are so busy these days and it's like, you know, is it worth my time to do that myself or is it easier to just pay someone to come in, sort the whole lot out I can get on with whatever I need to be getting on with. But I agree that the the you know there is a it does seem to be a lack of physical skills being taught in schools. Um, I know when my kids were at school, uh, their you know IT design or I can't even remember what it was called now. Some 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 design um, yeah. was was so broad it covered what used to be domestic science, so cookery through a little bit of IT stuff and through to you know bits of work on a CNC it's like so you know in in a term or two how what what do they possibly come out with after that now my kids are both reasonably practical they're young adults now and they're off uh, doing their own things but for some kids whose parents perhaps don't have the the physical skills or interest to do that sort of stuff you can see that generation coming through has been absolutely clueless yeah, big style. And, uh, and and all I would say is, you know, if you do enjoy doing that sort of stuff, and I don't even know, I'm assuming woodwork and stuff is still taught in schools. And if you do enjoy it, keep your projects because it's a lovely thing to look back at if, if you do get into that as a, a career choice. And at my school, we, we did, I think it was called CDT, Craft Design and Technology That's or something one, like CDT, that. CDT, thank you. Yeah, but there was just, I don't think there was any option to do any qualifications in it. I don't, it was either there was no options or because of other options that I'd taken to do with languages or music or whatever, because I, I'm also very into music, uh, which I'll get onto in a bit, but um, it, it just wasn't an option to do any qualification on that side. So really, after school... That kind of disappeared a little bit. But then I ended up getting pushed down more the... I think at some point I mentioned that I wanted I wanted to be an architect. I had no idea what was involved in being an architect. But, you know, you've got to... I remember there was some sort of career computer thing, very early generation, uh, probably BBC micro-based computers at school, where you had to put in things that you were interested in. And it popped out career choices because, you know, when you're 15, you don't know what you want to do. And I think one of the options was an, was an architect, and it was like, okay, that, that'll do. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting, actually, because we're just to interrupt for a second, one of the things that really wound me up about my school when I was 16 and going through this photography woodworking dilemma uh, was that you know, my school didn't know what to do with me because I was good at the physical stuff, but also the sciences, maths and physics. And some bright spark said, ah, oh, architecture, you could be an architect. This was the mid-'70s. That sounded like absolute, you know, deathly career choice for me so in many ways they sort of pushed me towards art school rather than going down that down that route so I guess I should be thankful for that yeah well very 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 similar so um I was heading towards the architecture route and then I think I kind of I found out that it was a like a seven-year degree or something which sounded awful yeah and and I also found out that it wasn't just about drawing houses and <laughs> and and then I started getting pushed more down the industrial design route. So that was what I started at uni was an industrial design degree, which if you're not familiar, industrial design is designing everything from kettles to toasters to cars to it's product design effectively. Yeah, so, interesting. So I did a year of 
product design or of industrial design at uni and there's a lot of model making involved in that so they had amazing workshops with big milling machines and all, all the gear so for for a year i was shown how to use quite big industrial tools in the in the model making workshop of of the industrial design uh, studio but the model making side i loved but the rest of the degree i hated it was so boring oh man it just wasn't for me you know it just it, it was probably 90% technical 10% actually making stuff it, it just it wasn't for me I wasn't particularly enjoying it but then my life took a whole different turn when I was 19 and my my dad suddenly passed away oh. Com- completely out of the blue um and he died very young he was like 61 or something gosh and you know and, and he was my my hero of making stuff. And by then I'd already had, I'd left home and I had my own flat in, in Gateshead at that point. And yeah, so my world kind of fell apart. Although, to be honest, my mum was so distraught at that time, I was kind of having to support her through it all. And it was just totally out of the blue. So really it was a time to rethink everything. You know, I'd kind of headed down this career path of industrial design that I didn't want to do. And my dad passed away in the August, and all I could think was, I'm not going back in September. I just can't face going back to that degree. That is not happening. And I had to very, very quickly think, because I was living on my own in my own flat, Mm. uh, renting. I had to very quickly think, well, I need to start another course because I need the student loans. I need, (laughs) need, you know, my whole life was revolved around being a student, but I wasn't living at home anymore. And... I had to very quickly think, I need to sign up to another course. I had no clue what to do. I was also very into to music. I've, I've played the drums from a very early age and uh, piano and violin as well, uh, although I'm, I'm very bad at those now. But drums was always kind of my major instrument from about the age of 11 onwards. So I, I was in various bands, so I was used to going into the recording studio and, and doing a certain amount of recording, which I loved. Right. So very, very last minute decision in in August, uh, September time, it was, uh, I got in touch with a local college who were running uh, a studio engineer course and I signed up to that and I managed to get signed up to it and start the course literally within like a month. Did that for two years and got qualified as a, a studio engineer at the end of it, which was awesome, but completely pointless. There are no, well, there, there's so few jobs in studio engineering in the northeast you know at that particular time there was maybe three decent sized commercial recording studios in the northeast and it only takes one person maybe two at a push to run a recording studio so this course is churning out 30 to 60 trained studio engineers per year for three potential jobs which are already filled and they're going to remain filled for the, the foreseeable future. So really, unless you were prepared to move to London, uh, then... Where the streets are very, paved with gold, incidentally. Where, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but where you, you might stand a chance of getting into the music industry, which wasn't in the best estates then, and it's even worse now. Uh, it, it was just a, a dead-end career choice, unfortunately, but it was a very, very last-minute decision. And I'm glad I did it, because I met some amazing people, mm. learnt some great skills which have found a really formed a foundation for a lot of other stuff that i've ended up doing on the back of that Uh so i came out of that um oh and 
uh, a friend of mine at the time who was also very into recording. He wasn't on the course, but we got chatting and stuff. And we nearly set up a recording studio together and uh, we got all the funding in place and we didn't have any money behind us or anything, but we'd found this amazing building, this massive solid stone detached church hall. And it was on the market for 50 grand. <laughs> and, and it was giant. I mean, it was like a three-story building, sandstone, and it was on the market for 50 grand. I mean, even for up here, it was phenomenally cheap. And uh, it was like, this would make the perfect recording studio. Mm. And, and But we didn't have any money, so we had to go through all this process of, you know, Princess Trust and all these other yeah. routes to try and bring some uh, money in and various secured business loans and all this sort of thing. And we had all the fun- funding in place. We'd put the offer in on this building and had it accepted. And then at the last minute, we got gazumped on the building. And we got gazumped on the building literally within, like, a week of having the funding approved to go ahead to buy it. So it was just like, okay, that's all down the pan we couldn't find any more suitable buildings for it that that all disappeared so it was like well i need to bring some money in i started doing i'd always worked a bit with computers and stuff so i started doing a few data entry jobs and then that led on to me doing a little bit of spreadsheet design and then i got that got into another job anyway to cut a long story short i I was in it and i got more and more into it technical support and then into it it infrastructure uh, network design and server design and all this sort of stuff and I completely lost touch with the friend that I nearly set up a recording studio with. And I ended up working for this big conglomerate, a big IT conglomerate um, who are still around now. I'll not mention the name, but they were giant. And we used to, it was a big outsourcing company looking after private sector accounts and stuff like that. And and I started working there. And by chance, this friend who I ran a recording, who I nearly ran a recording studio with, he fell into IT as well and was working for the same company in the same building, uh, but on a different account. And I literally kind of bumped into him one day and it was like... Just just a quick question. Yeah. Did, did you qualify for that or is that something you could just sort of fall well, into uh, again? In, in IT, it's all vocational qualifications, really, uh, certainly for the, the infrastructure side. So I'd put myself through... Uh, uh, like. Uh, there's all these Microsoft certifications. I was going to say and MCST and yeah, so I put myself through uh, first of all MCP and then MCSE yeah. and Cisco qualifications and stuff like that. So I put myself through a lot of those off my own back to get qualified to kind of work myself up the the IT ladder. Ended up getting chatting on with this friend of mine, and we hated working for this corporate. Um, it was just very frustrating, you know. Trying, trying to change anything about how they did things was just at an absolute snail's pace. And we got chatting and decided that it might be fun to set up our own business. So we, we did that. And around that time, I just got married. And it was on my honeymoon that I broke the news to my wife that I might be <laughs> might be leaving my very secure, well-paid IT job. Timing is everything, isn't it? Yeah. So I remember literally being on the beach uh, on my honeymoon and saying to Mrs. Mark, um, would you mind if I, if I kind of left my job and uh, set up a, a business? She's amazingly supportive and, and you know, she's always been the, the, the rock behind everything I've ended up doing in my life. And uh, we, we literally were downsized everything. We saved up money. We lived just off my wife's wage and we ended up setting up this IT company, which 
ended up doing quite well not like amazingly well but we, we employed 10 staff by the by the end of it and we ended up selling that to a, a local firm and then I ended up working at board level for a while for this local firm and then which I hated working at board level that that's not me in any stretch of the imagination you know getting dragged off to venture capitalist meetings and all this but you do learn a lot about how business works very interesting but not my thing. Worked a lot in the project management side of things, so I'm a, a, a qualified project manager. And at that company, I ended up actually setting up the the company that we'd been acquired for. I set up their cloud computing division, kind of commercialised it. I set up the commercial side of the, the cloud computing division, which is still turning into quite a big thing now for, the, for that company. But they've been acquired many times by other companies now. Suddenly, 16 years had passed. That can happen, can't it? <laughs> but a blink of an eye. 16 years flew past, and it was like, hold on a second. This was only supposed to be a temporary job. Well, to cut a long story short, I, I, I left that job. Yeah. And uh, thought, no, I, I need to get out of this. This was never in the plan. And didn't really have much of a plan of what I was going to be doing. At that particular time, I was teaching drums part-time. So I thought, oh, well, maybe I can do something on the drum teaching side. I had a couple of uh, drum-related YouTube channels, which are still out there doing very little. The music industry, as I say, it was hard back when I got qualified. And it's even harder now, you know. Mm. It, it, making money out of the music industry now is is so difficult. And, oh, and in the meantime, over the 16 years when I'd been working in IT, I'd done a lot of house renovations. So we'd moved house oh, uh, probably eight times or something like that. And every every time we moved, we did a house up and we'd always be, oh, this is great. We'll live here forever. And then it's like, oh, we'll just put it on the market and see what happens. And then it would sell. And then you'd buy some somewhere, somewhere else to else, do yeah. up. And it just grew like that, and very similar sort of thing where I just couldn't find tradespeople to do the sort of jobs I was doing or the sort of jobs that I was wanting done in these houses. So a lot of the stuff I just learned myself. And so I, I did most of the joinery work myself, most of the electrics myself, and then got people in to, to test it and sign it off. Yeah. Most of the plumbing, tiling, you know, you just end up doing everything just because you can't find anyone to do the, the work yourself. So I had a fair bit of experience probably 16 years or so of, of house renovation. And, and these were pretty big house renovations, you know, to yes. the point of literally stripping it down to the bare bones, to, right back to the joists, sometimes replacing the joists, uh, new floors, new, you know, everything. Mm. And, and putting stripping it right down, putting the house back together and fixing it all. So, and I remember one day someone said, you know, why don't you just set up a, a business of doing this sort of stuff and that's where Gosforth Handyman started and I was living in Gosforth at the time started up the the handyman business just doing smaller jobs I always wanted to get more into the joinery side but I just didn't have the confidence to go straight into the joinery side yeah. so I, I started it off kind of doing everything and yeah some of the jobs that you end up doing are far from pleasant but it just builds up that customer base and then probably over the last Three years or so, everything has just gradually started to become more and more just joinery and and nothing else. And then I ended up changing the name of the company for all local work. So it's now Guffith Bespoke Joinery, and all I do now is well, a boutique joinery firm essentially. So smaller yeah. joinery joinery projects. 
essentially anything that I can do as as a, a one man band. But I've kept the Gothith Handyman name just for the YouTube thing. I think it's it's worked out quite well separating those two as as two separate entities. And plus, it kind of gives us the flexibility to do other stuff on that channel uh, because the YouTube thing happened very randomly uh, as well, which I'll I'll come back to on a on a separate thing. <laughs> oh, and and then various other things happened, and I had to stop the drum teaching because of. My mum's uh, in a home now, and, and oh. she's getting on and, and has Parkinson's and various other things. So she's not very well. So And it was just something had to give, and yeah. the, the drum teaching had to had to go, unfortunately. But, you know, you just run out of time to do it. You can't do everything. So now my life is purely making stuff out of wood and YouTube. And, YouTube. and that's kind of where stuff has ended up. I still don't have much of a plan in terms of where I want to take things. I think the one thing that I learned from running the the IT company is that it's very, very stressful employing staff. For five years of running the, the IT business, I didn't draw a wage at all. I just survived living, and it was the same with my business partner. We both survived just basically living off our spouse's income yeah. because for every penny we took out the business, we couldn't employ someone. Yep. So it made a lot more sense, you know, if we can get by, I'd rather take on another person, another network engineer or another salesperson mm. or whatever. And and, sudden, and it snowballs like that and it, it becomes quite stressful. And, and it's a responsibility as well because you're suddenly responsible for every person's well-being, their, their mortgage. You know, you employ 10 people, that's 10 mortgages you're effectively funding um, as well as wages and and food bills and their entire lifestyle yeah. as well it's, oh, it's absolutely yeah, it's a big responsibility and um, the thing is as well at, at, at a 10 person business we weren't big enough to employ like our own accounts team or our own hr team so all i did most of the accounts myself uh obviously the accountant would do but all the management accounts and day-to-day -day accounts I, I used to do uh, because basically I did everything on the operations side um, and my business partner did everything on the technical side. So I was looking after the sales, marketing teams, um, the, the, as I say, accounts, uh, finance, HR, you know, trying to keep up with just, and, and it's even worse now, you know, employer pensions and, and trying to keep up with yeah. all the legislation. It's so stressful. And I, I always vowed, you know, if I become self-employed again after the, the business was acquired, I'm going to try and keep it as just me. Mm. And and I'm going to really fight tooth and nail, although there's been a lot of situations recently where it's like, well, I could take someone on, but I'm really trying to resist that temptation mm. at, at the minute because it turns, into, it turns it into a whole different beast, into a whole different animal. Yeah. And it's not the route that I want to go down, but we'll see. So, yeah, not the most conventional route into joinery. No, indeed, nor, nor mine. So interesting, isn't it? It's really interesting. A lot of crossover there. Yeah. Uh, and, and to people listening, you know, we've deliberately not spoken to each other about this before today because we wanted to talk about this on, on the yeah, podcast. Preserve our be, sense of wonder. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> and, and for it to be news to both of us how, how yeah. we both got into this industry. One of the key things with everything I've done is knowing when to stop, you know, knowing when to walk away from a job. Uh, you know, if, if you're not enjoying something, that's when you start to lose pride in your work. And I think mm. that's a, a killer of any job. As soon as you've lost pride in what you're doing, 
it's time to find a different job. And I think that's one of the biggest problems that I see today is a lot of people, you know, they're viewing it just as a job, but not mm. something that they particularly enjoy or a passion and they don't have that sense of pride. And, you know, there's a lot of people who, who are immensely proud of the work that they do. And it's lovely to see a lot of these new YouTube channels that are now coming about where they're really promoting a business ethic of doing a job well. Yes. And, and and working hard, you know, it's it's yeah. it's hard work. Um, we both have you know, YouTube channels, and and this podcast may may have legs, may not. We're yeah. we're kind of committed to doing a a, a season, aren't we? A, a, a series of of That's ten right. or twelve on this. Oh, we best tell people about that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it's going to be the plan is for it to come out every two weeks. Yep. Um, but we're going to launch the first three episodes back-to-back straight away so that iTunes has something to kind of feed off and and stuff. So after the first three are done, so it's going to be a little bit weird for these first three episodes because we're not live yet, but Mm. uh, I'm sure on the basis that we've been going for nearly an hour and a half and we haven't got through half the stuff we're going to be talking about. There'll be another show. There'll be another show. I don't think we're going to run out of things to to talk about. I don't think so. So then from, from then on, they're going to be every two weeks, going to do it in seasons of 10 episodes per season. And we'll just see how things go. So exciting times. It is. That's the plan. It's like, you know, we, we basically have too much time on our hands and we just love the sound of our own voices. So Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. What, what, what's the fun of an 80-hour week when you can make it a 100-hour week? Why not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in the regular podcasts, we'll, we'll have a little bit of intro and a little bit of chat, and then there'll be a sort of topic of the week, um, which we discuss, uh, and then we'll sort of do a, what you're watching kind of thing and, and a, uh, an outro segment as well. That's the sort of format that we're going to follow, I think. Did you have any ideas for next week's topic or do you want to keep it a, a, a surprise? Let's keep it a surprise because I've put literally no thought into it whatsoever. I think, you know, even just talking more about the the sort of jobs that we're currently working on and we've talked as well about potentially getting guests on as well. Yes, I'd like to do that. That'd be interesting to, to see how other people have, uh, are managing, not just YouTube guests, but maybe other other guys in the business um, to see how they're doing. I've got a few ideas of some commercial joiners that I see absolutely killing it on Instagram. Just kind of comparing notes for, as you say, for, for running a commercial joinery business in in the UK and getting that perspective of both ends of England. So we've got you down in London, me up in Newcastle. It'll be quite interesting to kind of compare notes, um, compare pricing to a degree, mm. how how a winning business. I'm at the point now where I don't really have to advertise at all. I've got mm. a website, but um, for me, Facebook's dead. I'd, I don't use Facebook anymore at all. Instagram, I think, is is very important and I think going to become more and more important mm-hmm. over the years if they don't kill it in the way that Facebook has been okay that's another hole <laughs> that, that could go on for, yeah, you, for a use of social media it. as advertising could be a topic for another week I think but uh, yeah, yeah, I, I don't I advertise so. at all I haven't advertised since uh, I first started out coming from the photography side uh, advertising for photographers is, is actually really expensive even, even back then in the 2000s it was about a thousand fifteen hundred pounds a page to advertise yeah. uh, in the in the commercial directories, and coming to to this side of things, God, you could get a page in a, a local sort of newsletter type magazine for sort of a hundred quid or so. So I did a lot of yeah. ad- advertising when I was first out, first in the business, uh, and I I 
pull that right back. Uh, and I don't think I've advertised at all for about 15 years. It's all through word of mouth. It's all through through people who find me through Google searches or whatever else. So, yeah, it's the yeah. same here. You know, I've, I've always considered, you know, should I, should I do a bit more? Should I put some magazine adverts out there? As you say, you know, the little things that go door to door, your trade directories and stuff. I'm not in any of the, um, the vetting search engine things or anything no. like that. Uh, it, just business comes in you know and, and yeah there's groundwork that you've got to do to to build it up to that degree and we'll certainly be covering that off on this podcast so i think that's probably that's probably enough if, if, if there are if there are any listeners still with us <laughs> we'd like to thank them for their time uh, do check back um for the next episodes uh, obviously these these first three as you say will be released back to back and then we'll have a regular fortnightly episode we're going to aim for about an hour long aren't we thereabouts yeah i think so we'll try not to ramble on too much today's been a bit of a, a longer one I, I thought it might end up uh, going that way but uh yeah we'll try we'll try not to hey the, i was listening those that one the podcast you recommended what was uh the talk show talk show talk show john Gruber. Their, their podcasts are like four hours long. some of them do go <laughs> on yeah he's, he's a good talker john Gruber. yeah yeah, very, I enjoyed that. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast, do uh, give it as a five star review on iTunes because that really does help with the ratings and the rankings. Don't forget to check back every fortnight to catch up on the latest episodes, or of course, you can always subscribe to the podcast, uh, and then you'll have the uh, episode delivered to your podcast program of choice. Yeah, and if you do want to support the podcast as well, any support would be greatly appreciated. You can go to patreon.com slash measuring up podcast. And you can support us in any way that you can on there. would be much appreciated just to help us with the running costs of running a podcast. What's your channel again, just to remind people, Peter? I'm on, uh, I'm Peter Millard at 10minuteworkshop.tv. That'll take you straight through to my YouTube channel. And Andy, what's yours? And mine's Gosforth Handyman on YouTube. So if you search for Gosforth Handyman, and there'll be links, obviously, in the show notes as well. So... Subscribe to both of us on there. You can post any feedback. Well, we haven't actually decided where you're going to post feedback yet, but if you listen to episodes two and three, I'm sure we'll work something out for posting feedback. We're measuring up podcast on Twitter as well, so you can always reach us through there. Yep, and the website's measuringuppodcast.com, isn't it? It is. <laughs> yes. Is that it? That's that's everything. That is. Should we do kind of some sort of funky uh, exit where we just leave... <laughs>